0: I came in uh, last night to the city lights of Houston, gorgeous as always, but they looked a little different this Sunday or that Saturday night. I'd driven down from Dallas having attended a funeral, driving down to Houston aware of the events of this last week. Confident that Jesus knows the situation that we are in. Confident that he knows how we're feeling, even given us a model of how we should move forward. And so, two stories. The first comes from the Gospel of Mark in the 10th chapter, when a wealthy man took the initiative and came to Jesus, kneeled, and asked him about eternal life. Mark says that he looked at the man. Jesus looked at the man and loved him, telling him what he should do to inherit eternal life, keep the commandments. And the man said, I've kept those commandments from my youth. Jesus said, one thing you lack, sell all that you possess and give it to the poor and come and follow me. And when he said that, his face fell, and he went away sad. Jesus loved people, people of all kinds. And as Alan reminded us this week, Jesus loved people who did terrible things. And Jesus' love didn't always receive the response that he hoped for, that he had expected. You, the church of 1548, have loved well. You've loved like Jesus. And here now, your hopes and expectations for one individual have not been met, or so it seems. God sent Sean to 1548, and you loved him well, just like Jesus. And like the story of Jesus in the biblical account, There's love and there's sadness in our story, but our story continues even as you, as we, embrace our sorrow and our sadness, we continue to reach out, sometimes in fear and trembling, and that leads to the second story.
1: The second story is also from Mark, and it's chapter 5, and it's verses 21 through 43. When Jesus again had crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet, and trembling, he pleaded earnestly with him, my daughter is dying. Please, please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet, instead of getting better, she got worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him because she thought, if I only touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she had been freed from her suffering. At once, came and fell at his feet and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they had said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, Do not be afraid. Just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. Well, after he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and he said to her, Talitha which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl got up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat.
0: Anne has told a powerful tale of it involves Jesus, Jairus, and the woman with the hemorrhage. When we listen to this story, it's tempting to settle into the Jairus story, stick with the picture's familiar and steady frame. After all, Jesus has raised somebody from the dead. She's, he's raised a child from the dead, and isn't that the most impressive power of all, more impressive than power over nature and power over evil, power over sickness, the power to raise the dead. So we're tempted to settle into the gyrus story and focus on this familiar and steady frame, which allows us to keep our distance from what Mark tells us about the woman, the picture of the woman. What he says makes me and most men, preachers, a bit uncomfortable talking about the bleeding. Frankly, it seems like a subject better suited for a segregated audience. But what Mark says might make some uncomfortable. What he doesn't say, what he doesn't say but implies, is that the woman's condition makes her unclean, and that disturbs me even more. Disturbed by her uncleanness, which might impact me, And that's the issue for Jairus, or should I say, for a religious leader who thinks like me. Finally, Jairus has the attention, the complete attention of somebody who can help him. And we're on our way. When from the back of the crowd comes this woman whose bleeding won't stop, which means that everything she touches and everyone she touches will become unclean. She's an untouchable. She's cut off from society, she's outcast. She can't marry or if she's already married, there's grounds for divorce. Can she frequent the temple? No. Can she go to the synagogue? No. Can she party at the Heights finest restaurant? No. We don't know her name. We don't know her family. We don't know her age. We only know her by what she has, which makes her unclean, a person who infects everything and everyone she touches. That's one way to look at this. Another way to look at this is to imagine yourself part of the entourage of the synagogue. We know him by name. His name is Jairus. He has connections. He has a vibrant community support system. I'm in his entourage, in the thick of the activity. Like every other person in the crowd, I think this woman is unclean if she touches me, if she defiles me, now I'll be nice, I'll step back, lest she rub against me, lest she ruin me. And what is she doing here in the first place? Or I'm Jairus, and the focus is on me. And I think I'm the synagogue official, she's way down the scale. I think my situation is an emergency. She can wait, she's waited 12 years, she can wait another hour. Why is she even here? And when the shattering news comes, if Jairus is uh, is like me, grief compounded and anger explodes. And I say, I knew it. I knew this might happen. This woman has delayed the teacher seeing my daughter. This woman has cost my daughter her life. But all of those perspectives misses what Mark has focused us on. He doesn't tolerate such a vantage. He won't allow such narcissism to allow us to look down our nose at another, to position ourselves above somebody we consider other. Mark's frame, the gyrus story, highlights the picture, which is the image of the woman, the powerful image that Anne has told. And what we know of the woman is unsettling, Anne's preparation for the telling of this story emphasized her condition. Just listen to Anne who told it for us like Mark told it for the original audience. She suffered from a hemorrhage for 12 years. She's endured much at the hands of many physicians, not in the care of, not under the counsel of, not from a single specialist, but from the hands of many physicians. And she spent all that she had. She got all of her cash. She liquidated her retirement. She had to sell her car. She had to get rid of her jewelry. She auctioned off her furniture. She had to take a second mortgage out in the house she spent all that she had and she hadn't been helped at all. In fact, she's become worse. Mark hits it seven times. And, like the young Mark, paused at each phrase, let each description sink into our minds. These descriptions that grow on one another, almost stockpile, so that the seventh and the final description, instead, she's become even worse, is heard with exasperation of what the woman must feel. We move from pity for her, she suffered a hemorrhage for 12 years, to empathy, she spent all she had and hadn't improved, and then finally to exasperation, she'd only grown worse. The story is told from the woman's perspective. She suffered for 12 years. She knocked down the door of the medical community to no avail. She's at the end of her rope, her wits end. She's out of options. She's exasperated. The story is told from, this, from the perspective of someone who has not seen hope lately, who hasn't had help come by for a visit. What motivates her? Is it her desperation? Is it her faith? She comes to Jesus to get to touch him, believing that if she can just touch the hem of his garment, she'll be healed. The story that Anne has told for us, the two stories, the frame and the picture, are accompanied by two other stories that deal with the same issues. The first is Jesus in the the boat, the storm at sea, calming the storm at sea when the disciples become even more afraid, followed by the story of Jesus casting out the the demons that possess this, this Gadarene man, and after this man has been relieved of his demons, which caused him to terrorize the whole community. After he's been healed, sitting clothed and in his right mind, the townspeople become even more afraid. Then Jairus, Jesus says, did you hear it? Don't be afraid, only believe. And the woman who reaches forth in fear and trembling, fear in every one of those stories, but of those four stories, only one, this here Do we hear the commendation from Jesus when he says to the woman, go in faith, go in peace, my daughter. Your faith has made you well. Only the woman is commended. When I came in last night to the beautiful city of Houston, gorgeous as always, it looked just a little different. I knew it had taken place this week. And I knew what was on your minds, what's on the mind of all of us. I wanted to remind you in these two stories of these two realities of Jesus understanding who we are and where we are and what we're doing because he's experienced the same thing. Oh, not exactly the same thing, but essentially the same thing. And that the person that he commends is the one who, understanding the reality of fear, still reaches out in faith. Sadness and sorrow and love invested in a particular person. That's what this congregation has done and done so well, just like Jesus. And I commend you for that. When I return home, My wife, May, always asks, well, how did the weekend go? And I tell her in some form or fashion every Sunday after time with you, I've been in the presence of people who take their faith seriously. I'm hoping this is a two-way street. I know what you're doing to me. You are a model of how Christians should live, and I hope you're getting something from me in return. Be careful what you ask for. You say you want to be the hands and feet of Jesus in this community. If you ask for God to come into your life, expect at some time to be filled with fear and trembling. Why? Because he's God and we're not. But when that happens, when we reach out in fear and trembling, when we reach out to others as we seek the presence of God, we'll be launched on a journey, a journey into a reality, a reality that will take us deeper and be more meaningful than anything we imagined at the beginning, anything we even thought we were bargaining for. We'll come to see that Jesus is no tele-evangelist faith healer but he's God in the flesh. And when that happens, we will have begun a journey of faith, a journey of faith that Jesus commends in you when you love well as he has loved. May God continue to bless this congregation as it lives in this community, doing the work of God in this community. And thank you for allowing me to be a part as your interim minister.